Hello and welcome to the Resiliency by Design podcast. In this podcast, we embark on a journey exploring the multitude of issues woven into climate change. My name is Ozzy Lang, and I will be guiding you through this exploration with the help of experts from the community. These experts are individuals taking action on climate change through adaptation or mitigation. The journey to a future where we can all thrive is not a simple path, but with the guidance of great leaders and a willingness to change, our future on this beautiful planet will be bright. On this episode, we are diving down to the roots of climate adaptation. I'm joined by Dr. Stuart Cohen, a geographer and climatologist who worked with Environment and Climate Change Canada for 35 years. Stuart has now retired, but has not stopped working on climate change adaptation. Since retiring, he started a blog entitled Dr. Climate Change, where he writes on current events and the impacts of climate change. We will be discussing some of his blog posts in today's episode. A link to the blog will also be included in the podcast description. Stuart also facilitates the Climate Change Adaptations Fundamentals course through the Adaptation Learning Network, and he will be giving us some insight into the course in this episode. Thanks for taking the time to have a conversation today, Stuart. I'm curious, what inspired you to get involved in climate change adaptation? Well, I was a student. I was interested in how climate information could be applied to practical concerns. When climate change began to be communicated by climate scientists in the early 1980s, I thought it would be useful to carry out assessments of the future impacts of climate change. The the very first projections of future climate change were just coming out then. But what you'd hear about is temperature and rainfall. You wouldn't hear about what it actually meant to a place. So I wanted to translate that to some kind of indicator of on the ground impacts on a place, things like water resources, forests, communities. I felt that if one could identify those future impacts, then what you would be getting is a damage report, the why of climate action. If if climate change was only gonna lead to benign things or good things, we wouldn't worry about it. But if these projected impacts were bad, then yeah, there'd be a reason to respond. My first attempts at this were regional studies, assuming no planned adaptation. So it's the situation that we had at the moment and what would happen if the temperature changed. So the first time I tried a case was in the Great Lakes in the mid 1980s. And I continued that kind of work during my 35 year research career with Environment and Climate Change Canada until I retired in uh, 2019. You were really part of the first wave of taking the climate data and turning it into plans and models that could be understood by a broader audience to enable climate action. It seems like you have continued this work into your retirement with the creation of your blog, Dr. Climate Change, which can be found at drclimatechange.com. I was recently reading one of your posts on the cold snap and power outages down in Texas, and I'm hoping you can provide some insight for our listeners who have not had the opportunity to read the post. Well, sure. And drclimatechange.com is is a blog I've been writing for about the last year and a half, and I try to assess different aspects of the climate change issue, and this was one opportunity was to look at this 
episode in Texas, acquire, look up different kinds of information to see, well, what happened? So this event started with something called sudden stratospheric warming in the Arctic. And this is a natural phenomenon. Climate watchers saw this begin to develop on January the 5th. And this ordinarily leads to a reversal in the wind flow in the stratosphere and a sinking of air, which warms the stratosphere. And then where we live, it means that the jet stream starts to change. It becomes a lot more wavy, more uh, snake-like. And that means that in certain places, you could get really, really cold weather. So weather forecasters predicted the oncoming cold snap in the central United States, including Texas. They predicted this as early as the 5th of February. But the electricity, natural gas utility in Texas remained really unprepared for the cold wave that eventually showed up 10 days later on February the 15th. So that's when the cold weather started. The utility began experiencing freezing of natural gas pipes. So natural gas wasn't getting through and they depended on that very much to produce electricity. So they had to begin rotating power outages. That affected 4 million customers over the next five days. So natural gas supplies were interrupted for producing electricity, but also for heating homes and for making sure that water pipes were warm. So water pipes began to freeze and that meant uh, a loss of potable drinking water for 14 million people. The early estimates of, of property damage from this exceeds 700 million US dollars in damages. Now, an unfortunate outcome of this was that initially the governor of Texas tried to blame the power outages on loss of wind power. But the utility reported that out of the 35 gigawatts of power that was lost during the outage, only four gigawatts was lost due to loss of wind power. The other 31 was because the natural gas system simply wasn't protected from this cold weather event. And this was the kind of weather event that Texas had experienced before. And there were recommendations to protect the system from cold weather outages. Those recommendations were not followed. And so the system was vulnerable to this. I was so shocked that not only did they know 10 days before that this cold snap was coming and they didn't do anything, but they knew that there was a possibility and the risks that were in place since 2011. And they didn't do anything to change that system. This is where it becomes really important to think about how an extreme weather event or an extreme climate event needs to be considered when assessing how vulnerable an important system like electricity distribution really is. Now, whether or not a cold event like this is climate change or not climate change, the important thing is climate's got to be considered as part of planning for and assessing your risk. What climate change is going to do, of course, is it's going to challenge all of the assumptions that were made the first time a system got designed. So explicitly planning for, for future climate change risk will hopefully offer more protection against future events that may lead to disruption of an essential service like electricity or damage to the system that provides it. So we have to learn from our past weather experiences but we also have to do climate scenario-based planning. And this is fundamentally different from just extrapolating a past trend to the present. These are not extrapolations. So it offers an opportunity to learn and to adjust the operation, the design, the maintenance of a critical system like an electric utility. You make a good point. 
it is important to realize that this is more than just extrapolating on historical data because that data doesn't give us full insight into the future conditions with human-caused climate change. The past is an important experience because it was an observation. You know what the climate event was because the climate event was observed, and you can also observe what that did to the electric utility, and you can have similar kinds of assessments of past events in places where water systems failed or flood protection failed or fire protection didn't work. These things are very important. We need to understand why the systems failed in those circumstances, but that's just part of what we need to do to plan for the future. Because what climate change is doing now is it's changing the numbers upon which past designs, past codes, past operations were based. So if the future numbers are gonna be different from the past numbers that was used for planning, we gotta figure out how to be able to plan for those future changes. What tools do we need to use in order to do that? The course that you will be facilitating through the Adaptation Learning Network entitled Climate Change Adaptation Fundamentals is really covering some of these ideas and numbers that you are talking about. At first glance, it seems like you have set up the course similar to some of your blog posts, exploring three questions. The first one being, what is the problem? Then, what is at stake? And finally, covering what can we do about it? Okay, so let me, let me address those questions. The first one I'll start with is, is what's the problem? So, climate is an important part of the characteristics of a place. And previous generations, our ancestors adapted their lifestyles to those conditions, their housing and their food systems and their water system and their clothing and their recreation, everything was adapted to the climate of the place. Past climate changes were natural, but current changes are not. They're happening because greenhouse gas emissions are changing the atmosphere, causing climate change now at a faster pace than historic experience. And this is gonna keep on happening unless the world is able to manage greenhouse gas emissions. But even for the most optimistic scenarios of the future, there is still going to be a change, and it's not just going to be a change in the average, but it's also going to be a change in the characteristics of a season. Winter will be different. Winter's already different. Summer will be different. And it will also mean a change in the frequency of intensity of extremes, of floods, of droughts, of heat waves of risks of wildfire. This is and will be a different challenge than what our ancestors faced. So what's at stake with this? Well, anything that is sensitive to weather and climate, such as water, forestry, food supply, ecosystems, coastal regions experiencing sea level rise, or infrastructure that was designed on the basis of past weather and climate statistics, like the Texas electricity system, but a whole lot of other things. All of those things are exposed, sensitive to weather and climate extremes and potential changes in climate change. So that's what's at stake are all these things that we depend on for our lives in place. So what can we do? Well, here's when we start to talk about adaptation to human-caused climate change, different from the way our ancestors adapted to the climate that they were living in and experiencing, which means we need to think in that way, even if it means challenging the methods used by various fields of practice for planning for the future. 
if past generations were assuming climate was stable, that it stayed the same, that once you knew what the average was, once you knew what the distribution was, that was kind of fixed in your mind, and you went about designing your drainage system or your forest strategy. Well, this is different. We're planning for a future climate that's different from the past. So can we find entry points where climate change information can be used to help us to plan to adapt? So this is one of the challenges, I think, for practitioners in various fields, is to find these entry points for new climate change statistics to enter into uh, the field of practice as it currently exists for them. These questions really help to provide a structure for critical thought and exploration of climate change adaptation. I could see how many professionals would benefit from exploring these questions. Well, I'm thinking of a wide range of fields of practice, engineers in particular, and they've already shown interest in exploring how to make use of climate scenario information within their tools of practice, whether it's design models or system models or vulnerability risk assessment models, to be able to incorporate that directly, run these models and see how different is the outcome if you run a model on a scenario versus running that same model on past historic climate averages. What's the difference in the risk? What's the difference in terms of the design of something that you need to do in order to achieve the same outcome of that, of that system, like say stormwater sewers? So imagine being able to do that on your desk and that would inform the service that you offer to your client. I'm not gonna tell an engineer how to be an engineer. I'm not an engineer, but I wanna get them thinking this way so that they can take it and, and run with it in their own field of practice in order to be able to offer climate change adaptation service to their clients. And as you explore the question of what we can do about it, I notice you're going to be looking into adaptations that have happened across British Columbia. We're quite fortunate in BC that a number of communities are already uh, trying to do this. So one example is Vancouver, which updated its adaptation strategy a couple of years ago. This included identifying what they call enabling actions, such as building capacity within city government itself to assess climate change risk to its operations to what they call mainstream information within their engineering activities, their planning activities, even their finance activities. But you don't have to be a big city to do that. So another example that we talk about in the course is a very small rural First Nations community called the Kanakabar Indian Band. They're located south of Lytton. They carried out a vulnerability assessment on their community and they identified actions that they could undertake within some key areas. Two of them were water resources and traditional food production. So you don't have to be a big city to undertake these things. And so as part of the course, uh, I present a few examples for the students to consider. It is interesting to see that small communities are also thinking about climate change adaptation and working this into their planning cycle. I think looking at both examples will be helpful for the individuals who are participating in the course especially because a lot of climate action needs to happen in small towns across Canada. Oh, yeah. In fact, I just attended a, a conference called Bridging Silos that was hosted by uh, Selkirk College in the Columbia Kootenai area. A lot of examples there of, of small communities in southeast BC that are taking climate change adaptation seriously and are figuring out ways to make the issue their own and to figure out how they could best plan for them. The final aspect of the course is really bringing the knowledge and skill sets learned throughout the course back into the participants' professional practice. 
Why is this important? Well, I think it's very useful to see how climate change adaptation is relevant to something a course participant is already engaged with in their professional work. Now, the Climate Change Adaptation Fundamentals course was offered in 2020. We actually had four sessions of it that ran that year. When I asked students to pull something off their desk and say, well, here's how climate change adaptation is relevant to a case I'm already working on now. It presented a great learning opportunity for everyone to share these stories. So here's a couple of examples that came up. One student talked about an agricultural plan in a regional district. Another one talked about a coastal region nearshore habitat plan. Another one talked about invasive species management plan, mine reclamation activity, urban green infrastructure for drainage of extreme rainfall, options for managed retreat from coastal areas threatened with sea level rise. And one other one I want to mention, community engagement strategies. Like how does a community planning office actually engage with people who live there about climate change adaptation as a challenge as well as uh, an opportunity. Now, some of these cases identified by course participants were already framed as climate change adaptation. Others were not, but they could be. And so this was another part of the conversation was that how could you turn this into a climate change adaptation conversation? So I thought that was a great experience for class participants, and we will continue to do that in the class this year. It sounds like integrating projects that participants are already working on really brings that collaborative feel to this online learning environment. Is really developing this organic learning environment where everyone is taking something away from the examples that people are bringing up. Well, what it means is that you're not alone. Uh, there are already peers out there uh, working on this. And so this was a chance to kind of reinforce the sense that there is a peer community already working on climate change. And what do you think is motivating not only the participants in your course, but also the professionals and organizations across Canada to adapt to climate change? Well, I think it's because there's increased awareness of climate change effects where they live and where they operate. There's an increasing trend in weather and climate related property damage and system disruption, again, like Texas, but there's lots of examples of this. And there's more local opportunity to act on adaptation with immediate local benefits. So they can see, well, this is happening to us. Can we do something right here in our backyard that will protect us? And and this increasing trend is being tracked by the insurance industry. So uh, you've got a, a large reinsurance company called Munich Re, located in Germany, that has been tracking this for about the past 40 years. And what they've been showing is that certainly in the last decade or so, worldwide property damage now regularly exceeds 200 billion US dollars per year. So I think that having this kind of evidence coming from the finance world is, I think, a pretty powerful motivator for more governments, local governments, regional governments to want to act. As these local governments and organizations begin to act on climate change, what would you say are the major roadblocks across Canada? Well, in Canada, certainly, I think that one of the biggest roadblocks is uh, disrespect. There are some interests, political interests, business interests that are very happy operating in a status quo environment where their or climate change action is either relatively weak or 
not particular or, 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 or non-existent. And these interests are afraid that climate change action will cost them. So I think there needs to be a much more respectful way to have an engagement on climate change between those that represent the fossil fuel industry and those particularly who are activists on environmental action so that we have a better chance of finding a broad-based consensus on actions that can actually be implemented. I think you have to create a common ground for seeing that there is a reason for everyone to be involved in climate action because it benefits everyone if they are. So we all have to be able to see ourselves in it. What do you think needs to be communicated in order to find this mutual understanding and this idea that everyone can see themselves in climate action? I think we need to do two key things. I think the first thing we need to do is we need to fully communicate the climate change damage reports to the broader public, what the cost of doing nothing is. I think this cost represents a serious risk to our future. I think while more and more practitioners are beginning to become aware of this, I think the general public is still generally unaware of this. And this is the why of climate action. I think we need to have a much broader understanding in the general public of the why. And then the second thing is, I think we need to do a much better job in describing what climate action looks like, whether it's reducing carbon emissions or climate change adaptation. I think we need to give more and more examples of these nuts and bolts of what it actually looks like and how all interests can be part of the solution. We need to be able to demonstrate the benefits of climate change adaptation you know, in advance, but we also need to demonstrate to the fossil fuel industry how they can transform their industry to a low carbon industry so that they can actually see themselves in the future and, and see good careers and good investments for themselves too. So you have this conversation about the cost of doing nothing versus the benefits of doing something. And I think we, we need to have a much clearer conversation on both of these things. And I think that will help us in the long run. Thank you so much for your time today, Stuart. It was wonderful getting to know more about your research. And I'm very thankful for your Dr. Climate Change blog. I've been reading stories for the last couple of weeks now. And you really bring the data and evidence together in a way that makes it really digestible. Thank you for taking the time to write the blog and for staying active in climate change adaptation. Well, thank you. It was uh, great to be here and thank you for the opportunity to be part of this podcast. And thank you to everyone who's listening. If you're interested in taking Stuart's course, there will be a link in the podcast description or you can visit the Adaptation Learning Network website. I hope each of you have a wonderful day.